Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... <laughs> I did think about this. Holiday Fuzz uh, Cory Knockreiner, apparently. Yeah. Cory No Florona Yet Knockreiner? There you go. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to give a quick update on the Log4j vulnerabilities. We'll dive into a cybersecurity related report out of the New York Office of the Attorney General. And then we'll finish with a discussion on a potential change to the professional landscape for requirements for cybersecurity jobs. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and shimmy on in. Shimmy, shimmy. I gotta wear my sequins if I'm going to shimmy. So we are back, and I want to apologize from the beginning if I need to take a break to cough every once in a while here. It seems like I, along with half the dang country, are getting over the uh, the crud that managed to spread around throughout the holidays. But anyways, it's been, what, a couple weeks now since we've had our last episode, and we've got quite a few things. We, we should start with, uh, we might have said it in the intro, but Happy New Year. Hope you all had a great New Year and holiday. It's been Happy a while. New Year. Welcome back. And I hope you all avoided catching the illness as it went around but i guess flu, flu what's it called flu rona flu rona man i <laughs> people either have one or the other lately. basically yes if you're not both sick, at the same time which would be worse right. um with that let's go ahead and hop into our first topic which i mean if you've been following cybersecurity news over the last month you're probably sick of hearing about log for j uh but it's been a bit since our last update, and we figured we should at least touch base on where we're at with this logging plugin and uh, where the vulnerabilities are at, and if we've seen a, a super worm yet or not that's been exploiting these flaws. And so since our original podcast a few weeks ago now on the Log4j shell or Log4shell or Log4j2 vulnerabilities, uh, there's been actually quite a few more that have popped out. So originally we talked about that 10.0 CVE scored or CVSS scored CVE, which is basically as serious as it gets when it comes to a vulnerability um, that us and just about every other vendor out there that uses uh, Java and this log4j library within Java patched as quickly as possible. It's been a few more. Uh, so we mentioned at the time there was another vulnerability that was a 3.7 at the time. That was CVE 2021-45046. Uh, that one actually got upgraded to a 9.0 very shortly after we recorded and published because researchers found a new way to make some of these LDAP queries that got around some of the protections that um, Log4j's authors thought they had in place. Um, we already covered that one in the update, though. Uh, but since then, there's been two more as well. Uh, so the first one that we haven't had a chance to talk about is CVE 2021-45105. Uh, this one's a denial of service vulnerability that's graded as a 5.9, and it does require a non-default configuration. Um, but basically, if you're in one of these non-default configurations, an attacker that has control over Log4j's thread context map, uh, which I'll get to in a second, can trigger a recursive lookup and basically cause a denial of service on the process. So to give you some more details on this, um, Log4j, as we talked about in the last podcast, it uses these special lookup substitutions 
uh, with the special string. So it's the dollar sign, curly bracket, and then some variable closed out by another curly bracket. And anytime it sees one of those in a log message, it'll attempt to do a lookup to figure out what the actual value is for that key in that special string. Um, so with this flaw, if an attacker can modify the thread context map, they can actually change the context username, for example, so ctx colon username, uh, to be any value they want. And researchers found that if you change the value to be another lookup string, so the dollar sign curly brackets ctx colon username, then when log4j encounters the string, attempts to look it up, it replaces it with the exact same lookup string, attempts to look it up, replaces it with the same lookup string, and it just goes on and goes on until it crashes. Uh, interesting vulnerability there. It's not as bad as the code execution vulnerabilities that we saw earlier, but you know, denial of service that, in this case, with a non-default configuration is relatively trivial to exploit is still pretty serious. Um, and then the next one that just came out about a week or so ago, I believe, was CVE 2021. Actually, this would have been two weeks ago since it's still 2021. Uh, 44832, which was a 6.6 .6 on the grading scale. This one was actually another remote code execution flaw, but it required a pretty non-standard and actually pretty rare configuration that uses the JDBC appender. So in log4j speak, appenders are basically the configuration objects where you tell this library when to where to actually send the logs. So you might have an appender that fires it off to syslog, an appender that fires it off to your database. In this case, the JDBC appender uh, tells it to send logs to a rational database, so a relational database like SQL or something like that. And if you had that enabled with those JNDI lookups from the original vulnerability, then you're still basically vulnerable to it. Long story short, it seems like ever since that big 10.0 flaw, uh, Log4j and other logging libraries have gotten a lot of attention lately. And this is I mean, this is pretty common that we see when one of these big flaws comes yeah. out. It's like the spotlight gets shined on it. It, yeah. Remember when Melt, Ghost and Meltdown, or were those the two, came out when CPU speculative processing was found to be a weakness, and now all the researchers know this is an interesting new place of research. Let's find other things. So it's not that surprising. Researchers have jumped on the bandwagon to look. No, not at all. And we even then though. Like we talked about this as it's a critical flaw and one that's going to be around for quite some time, probably actively used by attackers. But even like at the day of this recording, uh, CISA's director actually released a statement saying they still haven't seen any major intrusions caused by Log4j. There haven't been any attacks against any federal branches caused by it, um, but they do expect it to be used in intrusions well into yeah. the future. In fact, another update I just wanted to share that's almost due. Well, they haven't seen any active threats. They're taking it seriously. I mean, I think it was early last week. The FCC has basically warned, hey, guys, if you're not patching this, we may actually release regulation that enforces you need to. They haven't done anything, but if you look, basically they're warning you know, if people aren't remediating this and if they see it, they will use, I think it's like the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act or something else kind of to force companies that are vulnerable to this to do something about it. That's kind of nuts. Uh, they you want don't us see that, that that often. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not very often that someone other than like, I mean, you don't see a lot of like forced patching like that through regulations. 
Yeah, what they basically did is in the, the FTC thing that talks about this, the third bullet mentions ensure remedial steps are taken to ensure that your company's practices do not violate the law. Failure to identify and patch instances of this software may violate the FTC Act. So, yeah. So the, the one other thing I want to say from products context, one thing we didn't maybe out on one thing, one podcast about this, but I think we discussed a little bit in our big Log4j podcast, all these CVs Mark has said, we've remediated in any place they're affected. Uh, we the, being you know, WatchGuard in this case. WatchGuard. This is our product. podcast. And the only places we've seen these really being exploitable were more some cloud resources, which were fixed very quickly. That said, one of the questions that was a theme on our podcast, and even with this new one, which technically can, uh, some of these vulnerabilities are affecting Log4j 1.0, which is not 2.0. It's the older version of this, this, you know, this library. Uh, WSM uses 1.0. So one thing that's going to happen is if you're running a scanner for this vulnerability, you're going to see that WSM uses 1.0 and it uses a version that that uh, technically could be affected by this, but it's not affected by this. For every single one of the CVs Mark mentioned, for instance, 44832, uh, that's the newest one that requires JDBC Appender to be enabled. It's not enabled in WSM. For 45105, it requires the ability to do context lookup patterns. WSM doesn't have that. For 45046, that's also one that requires context lookup or thread context map patterns. The point I'm trying to get to is if you're pen testing, scanning WSM, one, WSM is something you should have it on an internal computer that's not a server to the internet. It doesn't expose any servers that suddenly expose log4j. So it's not exploitable unless someone already owns your WSM computer anyways, which is pretty dangerous. But more to the point, the way log4j is used in WSM, it doesn't expose JDBC or the context lookup capability you would need to exploit this. So I just want to say clearly that if you're seeing a lot of reports in your pen testing tools that WSM is vulnerable, technically it's using a, a vulnerable version, but this exploit is not exposed in any way that we can find. It's actually a pretty common issue across the industry right now as researchers are finding that like a lot of the detection tools get a lot of false positives. It's also kind of difficult to detect it, a lot of false negatives too. Um, so I, I, we, I know we linked a few tools in our last podcast, and those are still the ones that seem to be doing the best job, but you can't just take it at face value. You still have to do a bit of investigation and reach out to vendors and make sure what their actual stance is. And frankly, this is with any vulnerability assessment of anything. You got to realize a lot of vulnerability assessment tools See if a port is open and look at some headers, whether they be the server header or framework headers, just to see technically, is it running a vulnerable version? But running a vulnerable version doesn't always mean vulnerable depending on the context of the vulnerability. Often there's caveats, there's things that have to be enabled. And in, in this case, for instance, we haven't enabled something that's required for one of the vulnerabilities. So you can't just, it's, yeah, if you see a vulnerability report and it says something's vulnerable, you have to look into it. But vulnerable to a software version, 
versus actually exploitable are two very different things. Yep. So still, though, no major log4j worms yet. Uh, we have seen plenty of activity on our HoneyNet and, and other people's research, too, showing that attackers are trying to use it to install crypto miners and set up botnets. So some, you know, run-of-the-mill miner shotgun, shotgun blast style things, but nothing major yet. Uh, I think, like, the biggest attack so far was, like, one against a pretty popular Minecraft server uh, before Microsoft released a patch for that. Um, but... I didn't look at the detail, but there's a headline today where people are finding these on VM VMware servers. It might just be some ver anyways. It's like with any of these, we mentioned it was an industry flaw that affect a lot of things. And now people are probably looking, oh, what about all my cloud instances, which are all servers? But uh, yeah, a lot of new news and new stories of people looking into certain products and occasionally finding them vulnerable. But no mass exploitation we can see or no critical exploitation we've seen yet. Yeah, but still make sure you update as quickly as possible if you haven't already and push the vendors you work with to update actual vulnerable software as well. And for those asking us about our software, good for you. You're doing the right thing. Uh, but we are telling you we, we have fixed it where it's vulnerable and WSM is not exploitable. Yep. So moving on to the next story I wanted to talk about that I thought was actually pretty interesting that I read last week uh, was a, a report from the New York Office of the Attorney General where they actually ran an investigation on credential stuffing attacks uh, where they just last week published a report um, where they had researched into uh, these credential stuffing attacks and the report was titled uh, that something along the lines of they've impacted more than 1.1 million consumers. Uh, so we've talked about authentication attacks many times on this podcast, but credential stuffing specifically, uh, it's basically where an attacker uses credentials that they've stolen from other locations, so a username and a password, and they try those against other services. So like an example I always give is a really popular avenue for attackers in this case is in the video game space for us nerds, where... A lot of people tend to sign up for Xbox Live or PlayStation Network or Nintendo Online or forums for their favorite games with the same username uh, or the same email address and unfortunately the same password. And if one of those random like forums that you subscribe to gets breached, uh, an attacker that then gains access to those credentials will try them against other related services. So they'll try them against anything related to video games, like all these different services. And if you've had credential reuse, uh, then they have a strong chance of potentially being able to log into your account if you're not using multi-factor authentication. It's not just uh, isolated to video games, though. Like, it's popular across all services, too. Really popular in um, financial services as well, where if you have one set of credentials breached, they'll try them against a whole bunch of different services, too. Uh, long story short, though, Unlike password spraying, where they just randomly guess different passwords against an account, credential stuffing is they know that at one point in time, your email address email, was associated yeah. with this password. And so they're trying that with other services. And by the way, just uh, maybe you said it the first time, but the second definition of password spraying I thought was too close to brute forcing. To me, password spraying is they're using, they're, they're not brute forcing random passwords. They are using known passwords that were leaked. It's just they're not tying them to any user. It's like if you take all of the commonly known passwords, you try all of them against a user. Whereas what you mentioned, credential stuffing is more targeted in 
there's an email there there's what, what might not be your corporate email address there's an email address that they're tying to a victim and they're specifically using those passwords at other places where that user may be and unfortunately because people still reuse passwords across accounts like this style of attack is quite successful for the cyber criminals I would say, yeah, we've talked about a lot about the reuse, which is bad, but I wonder if even our design, the other reason this is possible is we use email as the easiest way to come up to a username because having a private email that you can, I get the need because like if I'm on Facebook, if I run a social media site, I want to avoid Mark making 50 accounts, including 49 bot accounts that aren't really him. So I want to validate something about Mark to just make sure he's the real person and that if he ever tries to open a second account, I know it's him and email is what we've used. But that's why, because that Corey at Yahoo or whatever stupid email I use becomes the my also common credential name across different platforms it's also become easy to tie the password you know not only get the password that the person's already using but know the username they would pick on a platform because often email itself is you know even when they do offer a unique username they often make it email or username for the login mechanism so it just makes it easier to credential stuff and find those reused passwords on lots of platforms yep that's fair uh, so in their investigation, the, the Office of the Attorney General of the state of New York uh, monitored online marketplaces and communities dedicated to these credential stuffing attacks, and they found threads where credentials were sold or shared. And through those different threads, they compiled a list of compromised accounts for 17, as they called them, well-known online retailers, restaurant chains, and food delivery services. And across these 17 different services... Uh, they found 1.1 million accounts, all of which appeared to have been compromised in credential stuffing attacks. Um, and as part of this investigation, they alerted those 17 companies, which they say they took immediate actions to try and correct it uh, and aid the compromised customers. And additionally, those organizations investigated and found that most of the attacks had not been previously detected. Uh, one other stat they threw in there was they chatted with a content delivery network and which uh, reported that 193 billion credential stuffing attempts in 2020, which I'm assuming that's individual like credential combinations tried. But even then, 193 billion attempts is quite a few. Um, so, I mean, this isn't groundbreaking news like we knew credential stuffing yeah. attacks were out there. That's what I was going to say, Mark. I mean, I, I, I'm glad they did the research. I'm especially the biggest takeaway is the last you said, which is despite everyone should know we've talked about credential stuffing forever and that's what bad guys use the billions and billions of passwords that have leaked for so none of what they found as they looked was surprising we've already warned against it but the fact that the companies that know credential stuffing exist weren't able to find these incidents despite knowing credential stuffing exists is surprising and that's actually like the tips that they provided at the end of this we're actually geared towards organizations instead of individuals. So usually when we see a report like this, they tell you as the consumer how to protect your account. Uh, but the attorney general's office in this case kind of spun that around and provided some guidance to organizations that have online customer accounts on how to keep them secure. And they were still pretty high level. Like they had four basic bullet points, uh, one being defend against credential stuffing attacks. So use things like bot detection, 
multi-factor authentication, passwordless authentication. Uh, next one was detect attacks that have bypassed these defenses. So look for spikes in traffic volumes for failed login attempts, followed by potential successful attempts. Uh, prevent fraud and misuse of customer information. So an example for this was requiring re-authentication for purchases or sensitive transactions. Like you know how when you go on Amazon, every once in a while you have to enter in your um, your special code from your credit card again to make the transaction. And then finally, respond to credential stuffing incidents. So create a incident response plan that includes responding to credential stuffing attacks. Like you said, it's not big news, but I thought it was interesting that the an attorney general's office uh, for a state is now taking up credential stuffing as a an interesting topic for them. So clearly it's becoming mainstream enough that maybe people will finally catch on that you shouldn't reuse a credential across accounts. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe that's just me being hopeful for the future. Um, so final bit I wanted to cover was another kind of thought-provoking article that I read recently where I, I saw on Dark Reading last week um, an author, uh, Sunil Yu, of the, he's a CISO of Jupiter One, uh, published an article titled Rethinking Cybersecurity Jobs as Vocational Instead of Professional. Uh, so in his article, Yu points to other job markets that have a pretty distinct classes uh, between jobs. Like in the military, you've got enlisted versus officer. Healthcare, you've got medical technicians versus doctors and nurses manufacturing blue collar versus white collar. And he says that these distinctions enable various industries to basically scale their training and hiring to address a broad range of workforce needs, uh, where the common differentiator between this is all professional jobs require a degree, whereas vocational jobs do not. And he says that cybersecurity, uh, in cybersecurity, the currently prevailing mindset is that security practitioners are professionals. 86% of the current cybersecurity workforce has a bachelor's degree or higher. And forty of the 46,000 cybersecurity jobs on Indeed.com, as another stat, 70% require a degree. But within the field, many practitioners argue that a college degree isn't needed for most cybersecurity jobs. And this is something that like, I see pop up on my Twitter feeds, it feels like every single week of people arguing about like gatekeeping in cybersecurity. Do you need a degree? Is hands-on experience better? By the way, I was going to save it for our conversation, but I would, while it is true that most cybersecurity professionals have a degree, I think if you, even if you ask the ones that had a degree, how much of your knowledge about hacking and cybersecurity comes from your degree? And I think other than the coding background folks that, you, by the way, you you don't need coding to get into cybersecurity, but to get a certain realm of cybersecurity, you really should understand how code works. Half of what I learned about cybersecurity wasn't even taught in my day in college. You couldn't, college did not help at all for my cybersecurity professional personally. And nowadays, even though I think it's changing and they're starting to have some security focuses in college, I bet you even folks in cybersecurity with a degree might argue that a lot of what they really use in their day-to-day -day has nothing to do with what they learned in college. Yeah, and that's basically what he's proposing. And not necessarily like full-on self-taught, which I think, like personally, I think there's definitely a place for self speaking as someone that is self-taught, dropped out of college and got into cybersecurity and 
finished up that for you. I kind of agree, by the way. I, I I agreed entirely with this author as we talk about what he wrote more, but I didn't even like the fact that you call it vocational or professional. I think you can be a self-taught, and, and by professional, he's really saying you don't only know about cybersecurity, you have a general understanding of a lot of things that, like, I, I think the argument is to be a certain place in cybersecurity, you need very specialized knowledge, but you might need to know a little bit about writing and about business so that you can mix all those skills together. But I even think there can be professionals that don't have a college degree that are sometimes better at even all that general stuff than, I, I think this whole concept that a college degree is the only way people get to a certain level is is not true so i had even more issue with it than he did <laughs> he did play the devil's advocate in that like one of the benefits of a professional education is like a four-year degree is that you are forced to learn across multiple different diverse subjects and forced to translate between them which can translate into better risk management decisions potentially if you understand like the whole picture versus just the tech side of it and, you know, I can kind of agree with that, too, but I don't think every single cybersecurity job requires yeah. that. And I wouldn't even say the majority potentially do. Like, yes, maybe once you get into managerial spots where you are having more of that responsibility for risk management decisions, sure. But, like, there's a lot of security engineering, security analyst positions where vocational, like, targeted training in a specific topic uh, could be much more beneficial. And that's what he talked about, too, is basically switching the pathway from professional to vocational means instead of four years of someone going through schooling, maybe a year or two of vocational training specifically for it would be more beneficial. Say a startup incident handler, a first time, you know, you know, level one IR handler for a company. They, they don't need any college. They just need very specific one year of training on on sims on alerts on different defenses and attacks so that they can understand you know the the alerts they're getting and do some basic you know research on them it definitely doesn't need four years of a college degree for that so i absolutely agree i just take it one step further i think you can get to a professional position too you still i, I agree you need the balanced understanding of other stuff but college is not the only way to that yeah i'm i think i'm with you on that too and basically, like it's there's no denying we're at a point right now where there is a massive skills gap shortage when it comes to cybersecurity. And anything we can do to help kind of shorten that gap would be beneficial. And I think shifting, I, I feel like from amongst the rank and file cybersecurity folks, or actually, that's a pretty broad statement. Amongst the people I follow on Twitter, I think there's a pretty common understanding that you don't need a four year degree. You don't even necessarily need professional training. Like there is a space out there for even self-taught people as long as you've got the right skills to get your foot in the door and get a cybersecurity job. A lot of the best security researchers, best reverses I've met, not only didn't go to college, but they wouldn't be taught what they needed to do the reversing in college anyways. I, if you think about it, the tech industry has always kind of had this delay, had this. If you think about when computers were, let, let's talk 80s, 90s, when personal computers are just starting to blow up, uh, you know, it used to be to work at Microsoft at all, you'd need a degree which is either on infor managed information systems, the non-coding computer degree, or you'd need a coding degree just to be support. And of course, they realized to support a Windows operating system, you don't really need that level of professional degree. So suddenly all this A plus certification, suddenly out of nowhere, I'd say in the 90s and 2000s, we had all this just basic 
things like Windows A plus certification or different product A plus certifications that that's the vocational thing. In a year, you could learn enough to totally support Windows, and I don't need to learn how to code or how to generally manage information systems to do it. And that I think that happens all the time with technology because at the beginning, it is the really, the people that invested are the most educated sometimes or at least experimented in the, situ the, the technology for the long time to, to make the thing. But it gets to a point where eventually you're at a level of support or need that just someone training up on certain niche things can can fit the the bill and there's a lot of i think there's a lot of places in cybersecurity that wouldn't need a college degree and i even think that you could train people for some positions pretty easily on job too as long as they had an interest and you could tell they at least had some technical you know sufficiency of of learning things if given time and i'd say like a call to action to speaking as a hiring manager to other hiring managers out there like you don't necessarily need to have that college degree as a requirement on a job posting, uh, especially for some of these lower entry level positions. Like certifications do a great job of proving they've got some basic knowledge. I'm not the biggest personal fan of certifications, but they, they yeah, do. Yeah, they have the same like, problem too. They don't necessarily mean experience yep. as much as passing tests, but they're at least something. And then work on your actual interviewing to try and weed out the actual technical expertise of individuals that apply for these jobs. Like it is a little bit more work, but I mean, I'd rather have someone that actually knows what they're doing without a degree than someone that got a, a master's in computer science that has zero experience in cybersecurity. I agree. I think one common way hiring managers that you can maybe say you would like a blah degree or X equivalent. Make sure you have the X X equivalent. It doesn't have to be a degree. Uh, define some sort of X equivalent that can work for the very specific role you have. And there are X equivalents out there, whether it's years of experience or certifications. Maybe someday in the future we'll see a DigiPen like college for cybersecurity or something. So that's still around, by the way. I used to be interested. When I liked CGI, I always wanted to go to one of those very focused vocational schools. DigiPen is still around. I've got a friend that works there. Awesome. So maybe <laughs> it's time to start a cybersecurity one. Who knows? Yep. <laughs> hey, business idea. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, with all my copious amounts of free time. You're yeah, right. Free, the free time we have. <laughs> so wow. it's good to be back. And... Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a good way to start the new year with some hopes for shifting in the future to hire more cybersecurity nerds out there. Cool. I hope you guys had a great holiday. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.